Well, I noticed um, from the last time we spoke about the space telescope, um, I did mention that uh, you know there's a petition to rename the the uh, space telescope because James Webb was mm-hmm. uh, you know kept um, any LGBT uh, members got them kicked out of NASA during the lavender scare. Um, so let me just open that petition real quick and scroll all the way down to the bottom to see how many of you signed the petition after me. And oh, my name's the last one. Oh, on the wow. Petition. Good job, so, Eric. <laughs> no, nope, I, I guess it's just not important to anybody else. What's never ending to find the beginning that came before everything? Like kids with the It's uh, we could just call it like uh the the jubilant wonderful space telescope or uh, the just jubilee just jubilee Wednesday. wondrous yeah jubilee Wednesday space telescope. There we go. Um, well, you know, uh, I believe the petition's still open. So let's see. I'm sure Justin will do it. He's a He's a fellow, uh, as I put, researcher, scientist in astronomy or related field. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I think cell and gene therapy is very much related to astronomy, especially in the search for uh, extraterrestrial life. So that's how that works out. Well, and uh, if we can uh, maybe turn these type of infrared uh, wavelengths towards our own bodies, you know, we can find a lot about the chemistry and stuff going on inside of ourselves, not just the chemistry going on in other galaxies. Yeah. Um, so I guess you mentioned these images the other day a little bit, but I kind of wanted to go through them in more detail. Yeah. Especially because I know you've uh, scoured the internet for accurate information <laughs> for these, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> But it is it is interesting because the group of five images that they released, one of them being like a spectrograph or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and then, well, I guess they released more images, but you got to go to their Flickr to look through like the additional information for each one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they- The Jupiter ones are freaking amazing. Okay. And then the recent- um, like the Cartwheel Galaxy one was released this week, right? Right, yeah, that's the one everyone's been talking about the last couple of days. <clears throat> the I guess the the real sort of cool thing, and we talked about this when we did the web episode where we talked about how it was all functioning, but you have this, the, the two instruments that are really being utilized most right now for a lot of this early imaging and what is being published, being initially published by ESA and NASA, and then that data goes out into 
the public information world and then a bunch of scientists have ability to ac access that open source information and then they write papers based upon all of the open source data that creates those images and then those papers uh, get peer-reviewed and then as the peer reviews whittle down to okay these are the papers then that are the best explainers of what's going on based upon this early data set um, then NASA will eventually publish like sort of uh, full like conclusions of what these images are showing right now technically there has been no sort of conclusive or uh, even like correlative study that is official yet about what makes up these images. There's lots of papers that have now already been published about what these images show and they're in the peer review process. And once they get peer reviewed and whittled down, then there'll be a full publication about this is what we saw with the cartwheel galaxy type of thing. So, so it's just another big scientific process going on right now. This episode's premature. It's it's premature, but it's a lot of stuff that we can talk about that maybe will be confirmed at a later date. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Much like our, our very first uh, coronavirus episode. Where, right, right, right. Uh, you were saying this is definitely going to be longer than a few weeks. Um, <laughs> Good thing I was wrong about that, though. I was totally wrong. So yeah. Happy to yeah, be wrong yeah. about that one. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, can't wait for that fourth booster shot. Uh, let me know, Fauci, when I can get that. Just, um, you know, they're just going to put you off until the new one for BA4 and 5 comes out at the end of September, and then you'll just get that one instead. Yeah, I'm sure I'll be able to get it at the end of September. No way that they would uh, be terrible at rolling that one out and make sure <laughs> that, ah, we don't have enough supply for everyone. Um yeah, yeah, that's great. Love it, love it. Um, but, but well, good news is they'll, the they'll keep like enough doses to give like all of South and South America and Africa a dose. We'll just keep those on on ice just in case. We'll just we'll just hold them for you. We'll hold those for hey, you guys. That's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. Go ahead, send it there. <laughs> um, send it elsewhere. No, just we need to hold on to these people, just in case. <laughs> <laughs> breathing in, breathing out. That's what I'm going to make for Miami is just a giant a giant uh, syringe, but it's going to be a mask instead of like a <laughs> fluid inside of it. And just, it's just going to be called like safe question mark. That's <laughs> it's so edgy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guarantee that'll sell. Um, yeah, I've already sold three paintings, by the way. So keep those. Oh, nice. Uh, orders coming in that's really helping me um not have a crisis trying to figure out how to get there um but back to space so i think uh, i just kind of wanted to do these in order i guess of the way that they were on nasa's website <laughs> so, oh, okay that's fine yeah 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 like the the cosmic cliffs one i think is also the one that is like the the deep field view is very stunning for the information that's in it, but the cosmic cliffs one is like very visually <laughs> stimulating. I think right, for right, a lot right, of people. Right, right. Um, but I found that one very cool because one, it's part of our galaxy, right? It's like on one of the arms. Yes. Um, 
so this is part of the Milky Way galaxy. This is the one that looks like there's kind of mountains with like kind of a blue hazy night sky behind it. Yeah, and we've seen this before as like a as part of the Milky Way's galactic nursery. Like it was looked at by Hubble and it's been considered like a cool spot to look at for star formation and stuff like that from going back to the 60s and 70s before we even had a space telescope. And I think the thing that is I mean there's a lot of things that are cool about it. The the things that are nuts about it is like looking at this stuff you really need to change your perspective on how you're viewing things. Um and I guess this is probably an episode best accompanied by looking at the images too. But the I found it crazy <laughs> that like the tallest peaks in this image to the valley of like that what you would consider kind of the cliff mm-hmm. is uh the distance is seven light years yeah. <laughs> between those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You you need uh to pack in uh something like uh what? Two hundred solar systems, something like that. Twenty one that's insane. Two hundred ten solar systems, something along that magnitude in order to make that distance. And when I'm saying when I'm talking solar, I'm talking about our whole solar system, like way out past Pluto, like the whole Oort cloud, the whole thing, where Voyager has just breached, popped the bubble, and gone out to interstellar space. The time it's taken Voyager to be launched and hit interstellar space, you need to do that a couple hundred times, and then you'll be able to go from the 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 cliff to the valley in that cosmic <laughs> landscape. <laughs> yeah, so it's just it's insane that there's that the magnitude of things that you're looking at with all of this is that great. And also at the same t- so it, it's the magnitude of it is insane, but then realizing that like the the shape of the what you would just call the cliff and like the <clears throat> kind of like steam that looks like it's coming off of it and the the bubbles and the you know uh, grouping of stuff the what's actually forming in that dust cloud on the periphery of like this kind of bluish area what is actually forming stars right there is the interaction between all of that matter and then intense ultraviolet radiation and stellar wind mm-hmm. from the young stars that are located in like the upper bluish area like the bubble that you would consider that's not really in frame of this image but it's crazy that the like that things on that tiny of a scale like ultraviolet radiation that is just particles moving at um, very high frequencies short wavelengths that's what's causing like stars to form on this massive scale. I don't know. It's like, it feels like contradictory. Almost. Well, you're, you're kind of getting both. So like we have solar wind that we've talked about lots of times, especially with like the earth's magnetic field and so particles that are emitting from the sun at super high velocity. We have this solar wind. Now our sun is like a medium star. It's a very stable star. It didn't, get born really fast and it's not going to die very fast um, a lot of these stars that are born in this type of nursery area where you have a lot of condensed gas the ones that are born early on 
get huge really fast and they explode really fast. So they're not like our sun at all. They're, they become super massive red giants really quickly and explode. And because of that, their emission of all of that solar wind in their short lifetime and then their explosion actually disperses all of that interstellar hydrogen and gas and basically like soot because it's just a bunch of like collected molecules that are bonded together. It's That's kind of what this dust is. Um, and it will, you'll, it will just completely clear out a whole region of it when that star explodes. And then around the borders of that, you'll have a lot of compressed gas where that star exploded and pushed all of its dust and gas out. And then it, that edge line that it's expanding will hit up against the edge of more dust. And then all of a sudden you'll have a new compressed region of space where more stars will form. And then those will, you know, form really fast and blow up and die and push all of that dust out and make a clear space again. And then where the edges of that dust cloud meets the edges of the other dust cloud causes another uh, collapsing point which causes more stars to form and then it blows up and clears out its space again so that's why you see in the image these very like edge defining lines of the dust and between like the complete like clear vastness of space to one edge and then like condensed dust on another and if you look close along the edges of those curves um, you can tell that the the dust and gas is very compressed along those edges and if you see the um the um mid infrared um image range you can tell that there's little bitty bursts of initial star formation that's happening right along those those little edges of the cliffs where the dust and the gas is condensed the most on those spots it's pretty fucking crazy yeah i i think that's one of the main reasons that I've like always loved chemistry so much. Um, I wasn't like super good at it, but just always having that concept in your head that like, you know, we think about it often like cells, like cell death or something like that. And then we think like, well, okay, it, you know, it dies. So then you just kind of put it all in the trash or whatever. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, you no, just flake it, it off gets... that dead skin under uh, the incinerator and burn it up. <laughs> right <laughs> but that's that's not how it operates at all like there's that whole you know um like matter cannot be like created or destroyed really just because it's it gets recycled all mm -hmm. of the time so that's it's what's so interesting i think looking at all of these images is really wrapping your head around that concept that yeah there's like been probably billions of stars that have exploded and all of that matter has then gone and rammed into other matter that has then formed new stars and will just continue in this process until there's like an evening out of the universe <laughs> like complete entropy right um, and, and we need and like you can't even get the building blocks of the stuff for human beings and planets and plants and animals and all that stuff unless you have a long billions of year history of star formation and exploding to get to basically fuse together all of the elements that create the periodic table that make the iron in your blood and everything else like you can't you don't get that from the first star 
Like you have to have this cascading event like dominoes fall where the first star goes out in hydrogen and then the next one gets you helium and then the next one and all the way down the chain of the whole table of elements. Like that's the way that it works. And as those explode, those release these heavy metals, these these volatile elements, all of the things that we find nowadays, all these rare earth metals, all those types of things are all released in these um, stellar explosions. Um, and then that stuff is either recombined into planets or asteroids or other dust or other stars. Um, and then it goes through the cycle again and you get a whole new host of elements off of those cycle, those things fusing together. Um, so the, like the whole way that the, that the, everything works, that's kind of the magic of, uh, of what the JWST is showing. Um, cause we could infer a lot of this information from Hubble and then comparing it to like radio telescopes that we have on the ground, you know, we could. We could tell like, oh, this is some of the chemical compound of like this type of gas or whatever. Um, but with the near um, infrared and the mid infrared instrument, the near infrared one on um, JWST is developed by University of Arizona in, a, in the United States. And the mid infrared um, camera, that one was developed by the European Space Agency. But being able to use both of those you can tell all of the different um, chemical compounds and the almost the all the hydrocarbons like where where everything exists um, inside of that periodic table and exactly like the level at which all of those elements and things exist and you can instead of just making a guess ooh that must be a big spot of hydrogen gas right there where a bunch of stars are forming now you can actually not you can lens out the stars by looking in the mid infrared because stars don't really emit that wavelength and so those images just show no stars but you see like the hot warm dust and gas instead and now you can actually see wow this region has this specific type of gas this region has this specific type of gas this region is has gas moving at this velocity this region has dust moving at this velocity um you can make a lot more accurate um, predictions about how star, star formation is going to happen, and then it, and then essentially like how the galaxies formed in the first place. Yeah, I it's it's insane the amount of information. Again, like you mentioned it a couple weeks ago, but just knowing that this thing actually got off the ground. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the so the Stevens Quartet one was next, and. Um, first off, uh, I, you know, I'd seen this image before, uh -huh. um, but, uh, I didn't realize I had seen it in it's a wonderful life. Um, did you know that, that it was like, I did not know was, that you've seen the movie, right? I actually have not seen the movie. Oh, okay. Well, um, you know, it's it all black and white flop, and it's about so. Christmas. So the two things I hate the most, it's, it's kind of a, uh, it's not a bad movie. Um, I mean, it's definitely old. It's like, what, from 46, I think? Yeah, 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 yeah. Something um, like that. But it was a box office flop losing $525,000, uh, which tanked the Liberty Films um, like studio. That had to be like their entire, you know, 
uh, budget for the entire movie studio back then. Yeah. <laughs> but there's, do you know the concept of the movie? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so uh, at the beginning of I've it, I've seen there's enough like... parodies to know exactly every minute okay, of the movie without having to see the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so the main guy's like, you know, praying or whatever, and then the, these angels or whatever listen to him and and are talking to each other. And they actually show like an image of Stephen's quartet. Like that's supposed to represent like um, Joseph and then I think Gabriel and then like the angel that comes to help him, which is like a not a good he's like a doesn't have his wings yet or whatever like he's not qualified so he's an angel in training kind of and he's a he's he's an understudy angel um but i didn't realize so it failed at the box office and uh so liberty films ended up going under paramount pictures bought the film company and then sold it along with Paramount's pre-1950 film catalog to Republic Pictures. And then just a cleric at Republic Pictures forgot to renew the copyright in 1974. So it entered into public domain. And then like ABC and NBC and stuff just played it every Christmas just because it was a free thing to put on. Um, And that's like how it gained so much popularity. Um, So I found that... So kind when it became no uh, access, when they became open source, like everyone was like, "Oh wow, why didn't I ever hear about this?" It's now that it's on TV, I can watch it every Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not it's not too bad. Um, it's about the Great Depression and what your life would be like if you never existed. That's pretty, you know. It's kind of a good perspective uh, thing to have. Um, Although I guess most parodies are like, yeah, the life is much better if you never existed. I'm sure the Simpsons have done it, so you've probably seen. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The Simpsons have done it. The Family Guy's certainly done it. Uh, I feel like Rick and Morty's paid homage. Yeah, it, we, we the, I, I've seen enough <laughs> to, to know. <laughs> um, so the first thing that uh struck me so interestingly is that the the five galaxies um only really four of them are like close to each other yeah yeah this (laughs) is this is the old the old trick of uh of of distance in space like uh it's tough to tell which things are in the foreground or the background if you are only using visible light because you cannot really tell the red shift of things to know how far away they are or if they're how far they are away and how far fast are they retreating away from you if you're just using visible light it's very tough to tell against just a background of a bunch of pin dots on a on a black sheet which pin dot is closer to you than the other one is especially because size representations are not useful in space when you're trying to measure distance like not thinking a a galaxy looks close to another galaxy could you could still be like factors of three or four off because one size of the galaxy could a galaxy could be a hundred thousand light years across or it could be five hundred thousand light years across it's tough to know without being able to actually kind of zoom in and look at some of this individual stars in that galaxy and then you know how old it is and then you can see that from the red wavelength of that light 
like how far stretched away it is from you and then you could compare that to the redshift of the other galaxies nearby and then you can determine okay these are pretty close together from a like cosmological distance standpoint but yeah so basically four of these are in a cluster um and which makes sense because too in the in earlier stages of the universe you have to all always remember that the universe is expanding so in the early universe the sky is very small because the balloon is very small it hasn't expanded to the size it is now so when you look in the sky back in time you're going to see instead of galaxies being spread out the further back in time you look the more close together all the galaxies are going to be because back in time the sky was much smaller so that stuff would take up a lot more of the sky so it's just one of those weird things that you have to always kind of think about you can't just you can't think that space is like a static thing that you're looking back in time the entire size of it changes as you go in time um but yeah it's part of part of this you know there's the knowledge that of the five galaxies that make up the quintet one of them is not anywhere close from a cosmological standpoint and distance to the other four. Yeah. <clears throat> and this was a question I have for you. Um, so the, in the image they released, cause I think like Hubble has the same, has released the same thing, but it's a different orientation. Mm -hmm. uh, so you got to kind of pinpoint where they all are to make sure you know, which you're looking at. So the, the JWST version of this image, um, the topmost one has like a supermassive black hole that's 24 million times the mass of the sun and is putting out the energy, light energy equivalent to 40 billion suns. Um, so my question is, are they saying the galaxy is putting out that much energy or the black hole is emitting light? <laughs> like that that's the part that confuses me because galaxies are so bright right in the center that is that the, just the concentration of stars that are being whirled around there? You know, I, they, they, I think they're saying that is the emission of that black hole, not not the uh, not the brightness of the stars that are rotating closest to it. Because the okay. gas that is at the center, that is close to the event horizon, that is rotating around super fast, that is much brighter than any star. Even if you combined all the stars that are a little bit further out from the center that are rotating really fast, the gas that is superheated beyond like plasma and everything that is whirling around that event horizon, that is way hotter and way brighter than uh the stars that are whirling around it so that the stuff that's being heated past plasma then all of that is being ripped into like smaller than quarks like yeah, is it it's it's getting down to its base information before it gets sucked sucked into the hole like it's being spaghettified as it's being dragged down into the hole so we're seeing like the energy release of it being superheated spinning around and then as those even even the uh even the the simple compounds of like hydrogen get spaghettified and stretched into the black hole as it goes away from the event horizon so as it's on the edge of the event horizon it's also already inside of the black hole 
but we're seeing like even though it might just be two hydrogen um, atoms like bonded together um, we're seeing that whole thing get stretched out and then and then eventually disappear even though it already disappeared while we're still seeing the information whirling around on the outside and then it'll be broken down to absolute its most smallest quantum elements and just be emitted back out as Hawking radiation. So you actually don't lose it in entropy. Plonk, plonk, plonk. Yep. Um, so the, I don't know. I've always wondered like, could something be stretched out so much that it would wrap around onto itself? Mm, Probably not. That's a good question. Cause I, I mean, I, that's one of the things we don't know. And maybe, um, Event Horizon is going to find out more, the, the one we talked about a couple weeks ago, um, because still, like, we're limited to seeing the visible information. We're, we're, we're seeing the artifact of the black hole. We can't actually see the stuff fall into it. Yeah. Um, so you're still stuck with sort of that theoretical conundrum. But there was a paper that came out, I think, last week that was... Um, there, there's certain uh, type and size of black hole that was causing a problem even with Hawking's calculations as far as, like, they could make really big black holes stable with general relativity and Hawking's calculations that made it all work. And they could figure out how to make real small black holes stable. But this weird, like, middle range uh, was very tough. Uh, in order to get it to work with general relativity. And there was a paper just published last week that finally showed sort of the um, the through line between quantum mechanics and general relativity that shows how you can have these mid-sized black holes that maintain their stability and, you know, don't just automatically disappear or, or cause a rip in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> and wasn't... So in this quintet too, there's also two galaxies that are like... Apparently, experiencing a collision. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 they're, they're come they're coming together. The ones that are like in the center of the image, I think. I'm trying to yeah. Like for me, the way the the other thing is uh, experiencing all of these web images. Um, for me, being having terrible vision. Um, I'm relying a whole lot on uh, NASA's uh, alt descriptions on their images, and they're fucking mm -hmm. incredible. Like. You know, they're thousand words long describing everything from as you go like across the image, describing the colors of different things in the image and how that relates to different chemical compounds and everything like that. In some ways, like the uh, the alt image descriptions on some of this stuff is even more informative than like the article that then accompanies the <laughs> the uh yeah the image that they talk about in the in the journalism piece um but yeah the in this in the quintet there's two galaxies that are sort of in the in a dance where they've been colliding and they look like they're sort of orbiting each other their galactic centers are in a dance orbiting each other and this, um, these and are these are like uh, 290 million light years away too. So we're looking 290 million years in the past. This is what they look like 290 million years ago. But that's the that's the only lights that's gotten to us so far. Yeah, the the thing that um, I was trying to remember from I think was it our dark matter episode that they were discussing like the mass of galaxies and how it moves like a 
bike wheel instead of like like a fluid spiral or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um what what was it again? Like when two galaxies pass each other, doesn't it seem like there's no like like they just pass each other like ghosts, right? Well, yeah, it's galaxies are mostly empty space. Right. Um so it's it would be like there's going to be some, you know, maybe collisions that might happen between two stars from one galaxy and another galaxy that might just, you know, come into contact with each other. But the vast majority of all the things are just going to slide right through each other like they don't even know it exists. However, gravity doesn't do that. <laughs> the, the gravity knows very well where the... Uh, the uh, gravitational wells are that are created by the supermassive black holes at the center of these galaxies. And so if you think about the space-time being warped like the surface of a trampoline when the two galaxies come close together, then you will envision that it is not just a passing in the night of two ships on a dark ocean very far apart from each other. They are going to influence each other's um, gravitational pull and where those gravity wells are. Um, so, you know, we've talked about it a little bit, I think, when we talked about Andromeda and the Milky Way coming together, like, we won't notice it, probably at all. However, it's not like a case where Andromeda is just going to pass through and keep going and the Milky Way is going to pass through and keep going on its merry way. They will become a combined giant blob galaxy whenever they do that. It will be a long time where what they'll pass through each other and then they'll kind of reach the point at which the gravity walls pull them back. And they'll rebound back into each other and they'll pass through each other again and pass through each other again. And eventually they'll just coalesce into this one giant, big blob, round, ball-shaped galaxy instead of being a spiral galaxy. Um, no, none of the stars in that, or, or maybe a few stars will get like flung out into interstellar space and a few stars might collide with each other. But of the, you know, probably maybe a, half a half a trillion stars at least that would be encountering this they will just move around kind of in their position but relative to themselves and their own um solar systems and sort of constituent groups of other star clusters they're not going to really get disturbed um they'll just be in the new blob of a bunch of other stars you're just like you moved your house to a new neighborhood but your house didn't get disturbed at all um so that's yeah. kind of what you're seeing in this uh, quintet image in the center you're seeing two galaxies that are going through this process they've already kind of intersected once and now they're on the rebound coming back to cut back through each other again and it will change the entire shape of the galactic mass but any individual component part of that galactic mass probably isn't going to know that it happened and that's wild um and it it'll take what i mean it we're looking 200 million years in the past is it even possible that they've like passed by each other again uh i mean today i would guess that they're probably back uh cuz i if these are similar to like the milky way galaxy then they're about 100,000 light years across each mm -hmm. so if they've probably already moved back back through each other at least one time over the last 290 million years i would i would guess although that's just a guess i i don't know that's the other thing that web will be able to tell from in it's like actual data you can tell 
the velocities and where these things are moving and they can simulate it a lot more uh, accurately than they could by just using the visual information that they used to have from Hubble and some of the long wavelength radio information they used to have. So they'll be able to run better simulations for these kind of galactic collisions, which is that that we should just jump right to the um, cartwheel galaxy because that is an example of a rare um, galactic collision between two galaxies that did not result in the coalescing of those two galaxies. So in the cartwheel galaxy, what you see is like there's a giant outer ring that looks like a wagon wheel connected with hub and spokes to a very tight center galactic spiral group. And what's happened there, um, and this this was figured out before um, JWST was put in, in space or anything like that, um, but all we had was sort of the visual... Um, wavelength information from Hubble in order to determine this and then like very long radio wavelength telescopes that could tell us other clues about what happened but basically you had a spiral you had a spiral galaxy that was exactly the size of the Milky Way about a hundred thousand light years across and at some point um uh, a little over 500 million years ago you had a small galaxy that was maybe 20,000 light years across that happened to bullseye the cartwheel galaxy almost perfectly when it went through. It went right through the center and it intersected it where at a perpendicular. So like one spiral galaxy was on a 90 degree axis and the other one was at zero and it just intersected right through the center like a bullet going through a target. And so what happened is because of that like perfect pass through that small galaxy just went straight through the cartwheel galaxy and just kept on trucking. It didn't get caught in the gravitational well. It didn't get pulled back in to make a big blob mass. It just pierced through the center of that thing and kept on going. And the way they know that is through giant radio telescopes on Earth, there is a hydrogen and dust trail that stretches from the cartwheel galaxy to a small galaxy that's distant. And it's like the the breadcrumbs that lead you right to where it pierced through the heart of it. You can follow that trail like Hansel and Gretel, like right back to the collision point. So they have found like the the other smaller galaxy, like they yeah. do know where it is. And that's it's not the the web image is too close cropped right on the cartwheel galaxy to see it yeah but there are some other expanded images from hubble and then there's some uh very grainy radio telescope images that show that that much smaller galaxy off off to like the upper right of the spiral galaxy and then you can see on the radio image the the trail of the of the dust and the hydrogen gas that leads right back to where the collision happened <clears throat> And uh, so what happens there is when the smaller galaxy pierces the spiral galaxy that became the cartwheel galaxy, it's like um, a lot of people say it's like dropping a pebble in a pond. It's really not like that. It's more like dropping a pebble in like a aluminum tub or like aluminum basin that used to like feed animals on a farm or something. Um, because what happened is you have the initial ring that expands out. But then it hits 
like the edge of the tub and then it comes back on itself. And so then you have the inner rings that are radiating out from like that, the secondary rings that radiate out from where you drop the pebble in the basin. And then they start interacting with the edges of the rings that are bouncing back from the walls of the tub. And so that's how you get these very defined compressed outer edges and then another very defined compressed inner ring as well. You have this and then you have this sort of clear space between those two rings is you're getting these compression on the very outer edges of the pan and then you're getting the rebound that's compressing the stuff back on the inside again. So you're getting these very defined sort of compressed areas of dust. Then you have these uh, the spokes that connect the inner ring to the outer ring. And in the old Hubble image, you could kind of see those, like they're kind of uh, available, but the visible light of the stars, like it blocks a lot of that out. And any dust inside of that galaxy under visible light just shows up as shadows because it's just like uh, uh, like you putting your hand between uh, a light and your face, like you can't see through your hand. So the dust, when it gets in between the visible light of the stars and the Hubble telescope, just shows up like a black shadow. Um, now, what Webb can do is see in the near-infrared and the mid-infrared spectrum, and that allows it to completely get rid of the starlight in the galaxy, and all we can see is the warm emissions of the gas and the dust that are in that galaxy. And that's how we are able to finally see like these very defined structures of these spokes that connect the outer ring to the inner ring. And in those defined structures of dust, there's a whole lot of new star formation that's happening, just like we talked about with the cliffs, where you have these um, areas where the dust and the gas gets compressed. Um, that is the nursery for new star birth. And when a lot of the first stars are born, they're the hungry uh hungry hippos of the group and they they don't live very long they gobble everything up and then they explode and they cause these big clear expansions so even if you look at the um from the audio descriptions uh if you look at the um spiral galaxy image from web you can see down in like the bottom um the bottom right hand corner of the uh, or not spiral but the of the cartwheel galaxy if you look at the mid infrared image not the near infrared image you can see like there's a big sort of carve out of blank space that's up next to the outer ring and one of the things that's happening there is you had a whole lot of early young star birth all at once and they all exploded at the same time relatively and it cleared out all of that gas and dust in that area and created this sort of blank spot that's close to the the sort of four o'clock on the image between the outer ring and the inner ring. There's just sort of this blank spot. Um, so that's another thing that's just like happening with the cliffs. Like as new stars form, they push out all the dust and then cause another sort of um, place for dust and gas to coalesce to create a new nursery area. But anyway, that, um, that galaxy is, uh, is basically going to continue to form a whole lot of new stars now all around that edge of the outer ring. 
And in the near infrared image, you can definitely see that with all of the pink and orange hues that are around the very outer edge, that's showing the highest, most compressed, condensed um, areas of dust and gas. And that's and then you can even see like what looks like starburst type of scatters of of uh, light coming from those edges. And that's not actually stars. Because in the near infrared, we're blocking out all that light. What you're, what you're seeing there is it's so condensed of dust and gas, you are seeing the actual birth of stars before they kick on their fusion. You're seeing s such a hot pocket of condensed dust and gas. Um, you're basically seeing what is about to become a star there. So it's so bright and it's so intense that it's like uh, causing... Um, starburst effect on the near-infrared image camera because it's too much information for it to take in but that's not even a star yet that's just condensed dust and gas <laughs> yeah it's wild like how looking at these different images and just knowing what the information is that they're showing um and i do like that they compare uh like the hubble images too just so you can see how much more information and how much clearer the stuff is like especially the the galaxy that's like just a two-arm spiral galaxy that's kind of off to the left oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah um in the hubble image it just looks like like an alien spaceship like it just looks like a mess but with the web image it's able to clearly define like the arms and everything which just makes me <laughs> impressed that they are able to even figure out what things are in space from looking at just the visible uh spectrum from like years ago yeah and that you know in looking at the vis visible spectrum in in a way hubble look using visible information was more of a confirmation of a bunch of mathematics that had been done using ground-based telescopes and radio telescopes that really had like no visual information but we were just people were just doing the math you know making making the best assumption yeah, possible yeah. based upon the math and so we put a we put a fancy picture camera up there that could take it in visible images to kind of confirm some of the things that people had been doing for years without being able to get a good look at it and so in in a weird way, like Hubble was more of a confirmation of a lot of groundwork, whereas uh, Webb is now like we're going to we just made an awesome instrument and we have kind of no idea what <laughs> it's going to show us when we turn on these uh, different different devices in order to look at the same stuff that we've already seen in visual visible information so mm -hmm. now we're getting all this new raw data and we're going to come up with a whole lot more uh balanced and uh evidence-based conclusions on like galaxy formation and gravity and dark matter and all those things because that's the other part of this is like there's still like a lot of unknowns when it just comes to uh, basic stuff like star formation and galaxies and things that we can infer based upon general relativity and a lot of measurements that we've made. But um, knowing some of the more deeply secret hidden variables that are going on uh, by the uh, near infrared and uh, mid infrared instruments that Webb has, 
there's going to be a lot more discovery just based on like the rotation of galaxies. How how does dark matter and uh, dark energy influence the outer edge rotation of galaxies? We know that there's like a cosmological constant um, effect on that that holds them together. There's some sort of force that's holding them together from the outside. It's not just like a centrifugal force of a of like holding a string on your finger and whirling it around your head that makes a galaxy. Um, but this is being able to really tell what's happening on those outer edges of the spiral arms as they spin around is, is going to be sort of, uh, we're going to actually have images of a smoking gun of, of dark matter and dark energy where before we could just be like, well, it's rotating too, con too tight and too fast to just be this one thing at the center that's holding it all together. So we just put in a variable for that and we just called it this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think, so there's a couple other images, but I really just wanted to touch on like spectroscopy. Okay. Um, just because that's going to be a major part of all of these findings. Like the, the images are cool and everything, but the spectroscopy is really, um, I don't know that I think that's probably my main interest just because it will show you what the chemical makeup of things are. Mm -hmm. um, and NASA has an excellent series of explainers on spectroscopy that I know I learned in college and then forgot. And then I ended up in a lab and they're like, you know how to use this machine, right? And I'm like, yeah, sure. So, um, well, it all, it also helps you know that, uh, while some of these images that people are creating from the raw data are like cool photoshops or whatever, um, most of the stuff is not just like arbitrary, randomly picking pink to be this color or whatever based on the data. Like this is, this is used like going all the way to like aromas and uh, in, in wine and flowers, like the, the way that, the colors that are associated with different type of chemical compounds, whenever you create images off of that, that is a very um, precise science. It's not just people putting these together because, ooh, this color would look pretty. Yeah, it's um, really makes you think about the uh, <laughs> like those sommelier that have the food. Uh, food dye put in like white yeah. wine and they could be like totally different yeah. taste notes yeah 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 um so the spectroscopy is just essentially i mean we've spoken about this but the way that an atom is made up you have you know the nucleus of the atom and then you have electrons whirling around it mm -hmm. um whirling around it's not the right way to describe it but we're not doing quantum mechanics right now so i'll say whirling around they're, it they're they're electrons electrically bound spinning spinning things <laughs> yeah but not but not spinning but spinning yeah not <laughs> there a quantum there's a quantum spin <laughs> but it's not like orbiting right it's, just imagine there's there's some sort of frequency that's going on that's exactly. very very important that's to deciding understand. at what at, at which distance to the nucleus, at which hierarchical shell of, around the nucleus at which this electron is existing. But you can't pinpoint it. <laughs> right. Um, and so the way that electrons in these atoms interact is because the nucleus has, you know, like a, a hydrogen atom with has one proton and one neutron or one electron, 
And so that means that the electron is going to be a certain distance from that proton. Then if you get up to, you know, like, um, what, uranium or something, you have so many more protons, such a stronger group of positive, um, you know, uh, material at the inside that those electrons, the shells are going to be much tighter. So it's going to have a different... Uh, almost like density of like the electrons and stuff mm. like that. So just imagine that there is difference between these atoms. They're not all the same. And that means that other particles like light, um, photons, can hit these electrons and only at certain uh, energies, which is equivalent to frequencies, only however fast the a uh, photon is like wiggling in its movement however tight or uh, long the wavelength is these things are kind of all interchangeable but just know higher frequency as we've spoken about means shorter wavelength because it's going like ba 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 up and down mm-hmm. a uh, lower frequency means a uh, longer wavelength because it's just going like whoa whoa throughout the thing all right that's perfect perfect description you, you got it I, i'm following So when you have the lower frequency, the longer wavelength, that's like in the red, infrared, all that kind of spectrum, but just speak about visual light right now with these photons, that's going to be a lower frequency and it will sometimes shining a lower frequency light through will hit an electron. And if it's at the exact right frequency, at the exact right wavelength, that will... in a way, resonate with that electron and cause it to jump up mm-hmm. um, another shell. So the electrons are in these different shells, and that'll cause it to just pop up to the next one because it absorbs that information, absorbs that energy. Then um, the electron on its own will not like being there. It wants to be back closer to the uh, nucleus because there's now a hole where it left, and it'll fall back, and then that uh, that atom will release that light energy the exact same frequency exact same wavelength as what it absorbed Mm -hmm. and because these proton clusters in the nucleus are different causing different almost densities of the electrons each atom has a unique different type of wavelength that it will absorb um and that also means that some molecules have exact types of wavelengths that they'll absorb. So spectroscopy is just essentially measuring what light is being absorbed by whatever it is you're looking at. You could use it to like say you have a, a solution of something and you want to figure out what it is. You can put it in a spectrometer and shine a light through it and you know the curvature of all of the light. You know the intensities of all of the different wavelengths of light that are coming through. Then you look at where there's literally a dip in the graph because the solution absorbed it. Then you know, okay, this is a unique uh, fingerprint for water or whatever. Um, And that's essentially what they're doing is Mm -hmm. they're measuring, like they know exactly the wavelengths of light that are coming from stars. And then they look at what is in front of them so that's the one that they did 
that they released in their first stuff is they found like a habitable planet or a potentially habitable planet, um, which was found in what, like 1990, no, in 2013 by the WASP, which was the wide angle search for planets. And they knew this, the star that it orbited. And so they knew the exact signature of light coming from that star. And then they just watched this planet pass in front of it so that they could then measure how does the light, like what wavelengths of light get absorbed in the atmosphere. And that's how they have now been able to determine that like there is water in this atmosphere. There are clouds, which they thought didn't exist beforehand, but they are able to find like the, the way that the wavelengths are absorbed and everything like that, there's clouds that exist on this planet. And long story short, they're trying to determine what chemicals are in the atmosphere. And as you mentioned a couple of weeks ago, they'll be able to determine how were those chemicals created? Like was the methane created by just the planet forming or was it something that was released by some sort of plants or life or whatever, mm-hmm. which is is going to be like, insane but it's all just because these atoms absorb light at specific frequencies and now they'll be able to use all of that information to determine like all of this interesting stuff about these these different planets yeah yeah and well the uh i think the planet that they were looking at is a hot jupiter that's orbiting a red dwarf so it's not that one's not gonna have life on it but right, the, right, right. the idea is that they knew the exact um, sort of spectral radiation from the red dwarf star and then the fact that a thing that is orbiting closer than <laughs> closer than the orbit of mercury to its star um, has not had all of its clouds burned off of it and is able to still have some sort of atmospheric dynamics to it and have liquid water as part of its atmospheric dynamics is pretty incredible um, it's not just like this hell there there's something there are some sort of dynamics that are going on in that that's not just stripping the whole planet away from its of its atmosphere because it's so close to the red dwarf um so that's really cool but it's more that um because of trappist and uh a couple other uh exoplanet research things there's thousands of planet planetary candidates um that are um in Goldilocks zones and potential rocky planets and super Earth size, which are ones that get up to like two to two and a half size the diameter of Earth, but they're rocky terrestrial planets. Um, so those, once once uh, Webb has a chance to look at those, we'll have a lot more information on the sort of atmospheric compounds of that. And that's sort of going to be the interesting thing is, will we have the uh, chemical biomarkers for extraterrestrial life through um something like jwst before we have like a uh biological artifact of life from one of the mars rovers or something like that you know or will we get it before because like we're not going to europa till like 2040 (laughs) you know to like actually send something there that will be able to like test the underwater um, oceans through the surface of the ice like that I think that plan for that mission is 2040 so we're at least that far away from testing those um, oceans for life 
in the in the solar system. So, but maybe through just spectroscopy or spectroscopy, we'll be able to find out there's extraterrestrial life, um, or at least markers for it in completely in stars that are thousands of light years away from us <laughs> before we even find it in our own neighborhood, which is kind of an interesting way that that discovery would go down, I guess, because. My whole life, it was either we're going to find some sort of artifact of life on the moon or we're going to find some sort of artifact of life on Mars. And then maybe Europa or maybe like Ganymede or one of these other moons of either Saturn or Jupiter that seems like it might have like some kind of geothermal activity um, that could harbor life like down at the vents like we have life around all the thermal vents at the bottom of our ocean. Um but I don't know. It, it's just it, it'll be weird if uh, we say we're pretty confident that there's life on this planet 10,000 light years away before we find <laughs> find life in our own solar system. Yeah, it's going to be nuts. Um, but I think that's why I think if uh, God was going to strike us with um, Tower of Babel 2, it would be something with a. Uh, mathematics this time you know language we've got google translate but yeah yeah he would do something like creating a new imperial system where <laughs> um i didn't know if you i didn't know this until last night but did you know that the uk's gallon is like like what maybe 25 percent larger than the u.s gallon that's it's weird like, it's four and a half liters for a uk gallon does it have to do when the last ours. time they they measured what uh what it would be and that was the set measurement or whatever i i imagine that it was uh back whenever they created the colonies they were like sure this is a gallon of milk <laughs> like you know like <laughs> well you i know? mean we, like we know um what it like uh the kilogram changes like they just they just upgraded the weight of the kilogram to be more accurate or something Last you know, year. that stuff bugs me so much because they're like, like, no, it's a mathematical amount. It is not <laughs> like we know the molar mass of whatever. <laughs> like, it's not changing. <laughs> sure, you have your little brick of tungsten or whatever that like has lost this many atoms. Look, so the- some, some stuff's decaying in there. Some stuff's got a half-life. It's going to, it's getting, it's not the same it, when, when you have a, um, when you have a kilo of something, it's not always a kilo. Cause, you know, you end, you know, up, you end people, up sticking your own key in there and taking a little bump before you sell it. The the people in charge of that are like the student council of like the scientific community, just <laughs> making their own rules. They're the up fucking for no nerds reason. of science. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess the only other thing I had on this was uh, the Jupiter images. Um, so like. The point of taking the images of Jupiter wasn't to, like, let's discover a bunch of cool stuff about Jupiter that we don't know. The original part of that mission was to calibrate the the telescope. Because, like, when you're looking at stuff that's 290 million light years away or 500 million light years away, like the Cartwheel Galaxy, tracking is not very hard because it's very far away. It's almost static on the on the background of the sky the the telescope like we talked about is out at l2 so out at lagrange point so it's orbiting the sun 
like in a similar time frame as the Earth orbits the sun. Um, so when you're looking at stuff that's really far away, you're not really worried about like, it's not hard to track as you're slowly orbiting the sun to track something in the very far distance. Now, if you want to track a planet inside of our solar system, like Jupiter, it's very big. So it's a good target to point the telescope at to see if it can track it. But it's also moving pretty fast. And this, the telescope is moving very fast and they're not moving relatively with each other. They're moving at different rates of speed in different orbital areas than, of each other. So to lock, for the telescope to lock onto Jupiter, even something that big, it's going to have to be able to continue to stay tracked on that and like move the lens of the camera in order to stay on it so that the image doesn't get blurry. Because you can't just like take a quick image. You got to like to get these instruments to work. You have to have like sort of a longer exposure. So if it could track Jupiter, it could track anything basically is the, is the example here. If it could be, if it could be a, if the telescope could basically be like sit on the side of the highway and track the fastest car that's going in the left-hand lane, then that's what tracking Jupiter was an example of. Um, and when they did it, they got a lot of cool stuff that, uh, that came out of that. Um, one, uh, we talked about this back when we did uh, our our Jupiter episode, but yes, Jupiter does have rings, guys. It really does. <laughs> and there's like two little tiny moons that exist right on the plane and on the line of the ring that goes around. And those are thought to either be the remnants of the collision of two moons that caused that ring to exist. Because Jupiter's ring is mostly like dust and like really chalky, like uh, ashy kind of soot material whereas Saturn's rings are all like um ice which is why they look so majestic and they glisten against the sunlight and all that and they look amazing you can't ever see Jupiter's because it's like just a bunch of pieces of coal floating around <laughs> it's it's <laughs> it's tough when the when the sun does not reflect at all off of any of the things that make up the ring but when you look at it in near-infrared and mid-infrared, you can see this very defined ring going around Jupiter. Um, so that's pretty cool. And then, um, two, like, NASA didn't just release the Jupiter images. They were just part of, the, like, the, uh, the cache of data. But because it was, like, a calibration event, you can also see, like, in the raw image that there's a lot of, like, black little spots all over Jupiter. And that's just spots where the pixels um, on the mirrors of the James Webb telescope were not quite calibrated or didn't quite get the information. So you're seeing like the raw data before it's been smoothed out to make like a clean image. You're seeing that, yeah, there are like, there's a bunch of dust in between us and Jupiter. There's a bunch of other things that are going to cause like little specks and stuff not to get pulled in. That's why we have to have the array of mirrors as big as they are and all of that in order to focus the light and get as much information as possible. The other, the other part of the Jupiter thing though, was it, you could only really look at Jupiter or Saturn as, as your sort of test case for this tracking device. Cause like we talked about with the beginning of when the telescope was launched, um, it's very heat sensitive. Like, 
you cannot use James Webb to look back at Earth. You cannot look back at Venus. You cannot look back at Mercury. In fact, those are prohibited. Like, there's designs on the software of the system that prevents it from being able to be turned to look back towards the inner solar system because it will fry the whole telescope. It's got to be so controlled. That's why it has the giant heat shield and that the instruments have to be kept at like sub 500, negative 500 degrees and things like that in order to be able to use that spectrometry and near infrared and mid infrared to see the stuff at those super far distances. You have to keep this extremely cold environment for the instruments to work. And um, so you even had like the instance when they were tracking Jupiter, um, when they caught the side of the moon, I'm trying to think, I think it's Thebe that was, that was off to the bottom left of the image. It was getting so much sunlight reflected back to the, to the telescope that it almost, the center of that image just appears black where the moon is and you have like a starburst radiation out from it. And that's mm-hmm. because it was so hot and bright that it was the, the instruments were too sensitive to pick it up. It, it like overexposed all those parts of the instrument because it was too hot and too bright for it to look at. It was like trying to look at like at, at a torch too close. Um, which is why it came out looking like it did. Um, so did they almost fry the cameras? No, they, they, they have moon? they have governors on the things to make sure it doesn't get fried. But the, but that's part. That's one of the reasons. The reason it didn't get fried is because the it didn't image it because it got overloaded and was like, nope, not gonna not gonna attempt this one too too much, <laughs> too yeah. too too hot, too bright to look at. So did they did they know that those like smaller moons orbit the like ring or is yeah, that yeah, a discovery? Yeah. yeah they, they've known that for a, for a while. I mean, since um, Juno and Voyager before that, they've had a pretty good idea of all the smaller moons of Jupiter for, for a while now, just cause it's in our solar system. You can see it pretty well. Even with ground based telescopes, you can really study all of them. And they, there's a very, they, they know very well based upon like the wobble of Jupiter like mm. the the mass of the moons and which moons are on which side and their orbital dynamics that cause Jupiter to wobble in the way that it does. Well, I'm looking very much forward to some real stuff. Do they have like a schedule? Do they put that out? I mean, we know what what and when people are looking at it, but I can't read that information. Yeah, there there is a they they had a schedule. What was I looking at? Where it said the stuff that was coming up for like the next four months. Basically, most of the work is they did a lot of observations, and we got like the initial kind of like press release on January twelfth, and then now this week we got the Cartwheel Galaxy info. But mm-hmm. most of the stuff is like gonna take. A couple years probably to go work through the data and come up with things that they've are that they've just done from the initial observation um so we'll know more about that you know in in a couple years probably but uh they're they're all definitely going to be pointing at a lot of other things over the next uh few months i'm trying to remember there was a schedule where was it i was looking at about what was coming up 
Uh, I can't find it now. You're asking me to do things on the fly, Eric, when I just have to be the guy who has everything memorized. I thought you just, yeah, had it in your brain. My apologies. You're, you're, we'll, we'll cut this out. You're, you're the one that's good at looking stuff up while we're doing the podcasts. Yeah, I, yeah, I can't do that. I don't know what your words are. NASA, <laughs> NASA. Nazis. James Webb Space Telescope. Schedule of events. How's that sound? There you go. Events, Webb Space Telescope. Celebrating Webb's first images. Event hosting sites. Event list. North Brunswick Public Library Virtual New Jersey Program, a NASA telescope to create an image of a dying star system. How's that sound? There you go. Is that correct? Sounds good. There you go. Well, um, we'll be interesting to see. I'm excited. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to look it up. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I was going to do this one thing here. So the way that I'm experiencing most of these images is like this. It's like... With the with the NASA um, web follow either on Instagram or on Twitter, that's where they're putting all of their high res images. But they're also like putting all of their alt descriptions. So whenever I encounter one, I'm on my phone and I just have to like swipe down with two of my fingers on the photo, and then it'll give me the alt description. And this is what most of them sound like. Hold on, hold on, hold on. People are texting me. Image, a large galaxy on the right, with two smaller companion galaxies to the left, ten o'clock and nine o'clock. The large galaxy dominates the frame. It resembles a ghostly wheel with spindly blue-white spokes revolving around a glowing core. The outer edges of the wheel are faint dots of yellow, pink, and blue, with some gaps in between. The bottom right edge is marked by a large eight-pointed star. The smaller galaxies on the left look very different from each other. The top galaxy appears to be constructed of the same yellow, pink, and blue speckles as the larger galaxy's outering, with a similar light blue core. Its shape is less recognizable as a spiral, it looks like a chaotic oval smattering of dots. The galaxy below it glows as one large point of blue light. It starts almost white at its core and fades outward to darker and darker blue until the color dissipates into the black behind it. Sprinkled in the black background are specks of pink, Blue, yellow, and orange, which are distant galaxies. So that's what I get. I don't know if you could hear it, but... Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. That's kind of... It's a much, much better uh, description than the first three seasons of The Expanse. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 it is. <laughs> yeah, I listened to the... Uh, what is it? the audio description for like those first three seasons and it's it really did miss so much um of what like is actually going on on screen but then once they get to amazon um you know they yeah they actually describe everything once it's not a sci-fi property anymore they they pay for the real audio description folks <laughs> right exactly <laughs> <laughs> well thank you for recounting images that you've probably looked at Upwards of twenty times each. Oh yeah, uh, they just I I uh, I just have them on my Oculus and I just walk around and they just you know keep cycling through. So it's the only thing I see. <laughs> what a meditative space! <laughs> all right, man. That's all I got till next week. Bye.